Well, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 12, also bookmark Psalm 34. We're going to jump there a little later. We're looking at the end of chapter 12 today, verses 20 through... I think really we're just going to do 24. I'm going to group 25 next week um, with the beginning of chapter 13. Looking at verses 20 through 24, we see here the death of a king. Probably might be more fitting to say the death of a tyrant. We're talking about Herod Agrippa after all. Member of the Herodian dynasty. He's the grandson of Herod the Great, the king who is in power at the birth of Christ. We're looking at the death of a man who, in the beginning of this chapter, has James, one of the twelve, executed with a sword. And when he saw that this pleased the Jews, He planned to do the same to Peter. Last week, we saw how this plan failed. We saw Peter's rescue. He's imprisoned in a maximum security lockup, probably the most secure place he could have been in Jerusalem. And the night before the execution... God sends an angel to bring Peter safely out. And that's what we looked at last week. Well, this week we're going to see another angel. We aren't told if it's the same angel, but we do see that another angel is sent, although it is sent for the exact opposite reason the last angel was sent. This one is not sent to rescue and liberate, but to condemn and strike Herod the king with a fatal illness. It's interesting, the word that is used here in Acts 12, uh, to strike, it's used both with Peter and Herod. The angel strikes Peter and wakes him from his slumber, and the angel also strikes Herod, and he dies. We can see then that when it comes to these heavenly servants, they are those who minister to the people of God, and also those who execute the judgment of God on his enemies. I was reminded here of the very end of Pilgrim's Progress. If you have not read Pilgrim's Progress, please add that to your list. That needs to be the next thing you read. I'm pretty sure that in the scope of church history, behind the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress is the most widely read book. If, If you have trouble with the older English, you can find a great modern English. You can find a kid's version. There are so many versions out there. Read Pilgrim's Progress. If you do, at, at the very end of the first half, Christian and hopeful 
finally cross the river, symbolizing death. And once they're on the other side of the river, we're told that there are two shining ones, two shining men, servants of the king, the lord of the city, who had been sent. And these shining ones greet Christian and hopeful And they take them by the arms and bring them up this tall hill to the gates of the celestial city. They carry them by the arms and lift them up. And they tell Christian and Hopeful that the Lord of the city sent us to fetch you. So that you might be brought in. And you might look into the face of your Redeemer with joy. Christian and Hopeful Enter the city. It's a glorious scene, and you'd think this is the this is the big crescendo that this story ends with, but it's not. If you read Pilgrim's Progress, you know how the story ends. How does it end? With ignorance. He's another character. Ignorance gets on a raft called Vain Hope, I think, and is paddled safely across the river. And he approaches the gate with no credentials at all, just assuming he will be allowed in. And these same two angels, these shining men who had lifted Christian and Hopeful up and taken them into the city, they come out following the command of the Lord of the city, and they bind ignorance hand and foot. And they carry him to a door in the side of the hill, a door that leads to judgment, and they open the door and cast him in. And then Bunyan writes this line of warning. He says, Then I saw that there was a way to hell even from the gates of heaven. We see in these servants that they are always doing the work of the Lord. They are a comfort to his people and a terror to his enemies. That's what we see in today's text in the death of Herod Agrippa. John Calvin, when writing on this story, said, This memorable story shows, as in a mirror, the end that awaits the enemies of the church And also how greatly God hates pride. The end that awaits the enemies of the church. And how greatly our God hates pride. We'll see that in a moment. But first, let's ask for the Lord's blessing on the preaching of his word. Father God, despite the efforts of Tyrants throughout the ages. Your word is unstoppable. Your word cannot be restrained. It cannot be hindered. No amount of power or money or military might can quench it. Father, just as your word increased and multiplied, we ask that you would continue that same work today. Continue that word of your, your, your word going out. And Father, would you use us 
in that process. Use us, your children, as your instruments in sharing your word. And Father, would you speak to us in this time? Speak to us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 12, I'm going to begin in verse 18 and read to verse 24. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the centuries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace. Because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day... Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. What I was struck with when reading this text, it's it's not this text alone. It's the text we just read in Revelation 19, the rider on the white horse. It's, it's that there is one king who is above all other kings. Okay? And that one king is obviously not Herod. Obviously not Herod. That one king his, sends his servant to go and strike Herod. Acts 12, this ending is a vivid reminder that God Almighty is the Lord of all. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. And I think how, how easy it is for my uh, two daughters can rearrange their dollhouse. They can take furniture and place it wherever they like. They can hold their Barbies and set them wherever they wish. They can throw one under a couch. They can put another on a chair. Just as easily as they can do that, the king of kings can rearrange empires. It's obvious. Herod's time is up. He's removed. And it's at the height of his influence and the height of his power, he's just given this masterful discourse. He's got all the people in the palm of his hand, he thinks. He's already... No doubt scheming about how he will use this new popularity and worship to his advantage. When suddenly the real king, the king of kings, says, time's up. You're done. 
And an angel comes and strikes Herod with an affliction that ends his life. There's really just two things I'm going to look at in this text. The first is that the Lord God establishes and replaces human leaders, human rulers at will. And number two, that the Lord God will continue his work even in the midst of earthly troubles. So first off, we'll look at the Lord establishing and replacing human rulers at will. And this should be a great comfort to us. Uh, Tyrants are nothing to a sovereign God. That's something uh, read Derek Thomas, and he repeated that over and over again when he was looking at this text. That tyrants are nothing to a sovereign God, and we see it here. We see it throughout the entirety of Scripture. We see it in world history that tyrants are nothing. Now, I'm not going to be dramatic and say that we're living under the thumb of a tyrant. Please read about the Covenanters in Scotland for a little perspective. In God's providence, we are quite spoiled in living in a time of peace. We aren't living under Nero. We aren't living under Diocletian. We aren't living under Bloody Mary, and praise God for it. I have no desire to live under Bloody Mary's rule. I have no desire to live under the rule of Herod Agrippa or Joseph Stalin. But even though we live in a time of relative peace, we must remember that tyrants are nothing to a sovereign God. You know, there's this desire that the church has for revival and that the Christians in name only would, would, would either fade away or they would, they would become zealous for the Lord. There's this desire we have for the church to grow and multiply, but we need to beware what we pray for Because oftentimes that multiplication and growth, the burning away of the dross and the refining of the metal happens in the fires of fierce persecution. If you pray for revival and meet a hostile worldly government, you might be getting exactly what you were praying for. Now, we get some background here, everything that leads up to Herod's doom. Um, Luke picks up the morning after Peter's rescue. The sun has come up. It's discovered that Peter is gone. They can't find him. No one knows where he is. There's no way to explain it. It appears he just up and vanished. There was no mob of Christians outside of the prison that broke in and overwhelmed the guards and drove a truck through the wall and busted him out. None of that happened. There's no explanation. And the the prison staff, the guards, are in a terrified, manic state, frantically clawing in every corner, looking for Peter, because they understand what happens to guards who lose prisoners. And that's exactly what happens. Herod wakes up in a good mood, expecting to pander to his base some more and have another execution. 
But that all changes when he receives the news that no one knows where Peter is. He's enraged and has the guards executed. Now, we don't need to miss that here is an opportunity for repentance. Here's an opportunity for for Herod to recognize something amazing has happened. Something that no one can explain. That this man of God has miraculously escaped. And there's no denying it. It's, It's in your face. But just like Pharaoh, Herod hardens his heart and refuses to see the truth that's right before him. That the God of heaven has acted and delivered his servant. Herod won't see it. He covers his eyes, he stops his ears, and continues down the path of destruction instead of repenting. Don't miss that call to repentance. We need to be quick to repent. Herod executes the guards, and then Luke tells us that he leaves Jerusalem and goes down to Caesarea, spend time there. Now, maybe he's just tired of having to act like the good Jewish king. These religious, fundamental Jews are so tiring, and he's just sick of having to try to earn their favor. He needs a change of scenery, and so he goes to his beach house, his palace right on the coast of the Mediterranean in Caesarea. And then Luke mentions a conflict that pops up. This conflict is between Herod and two cities, Tyre and Sidon. These are two port cities as well, right on the coast. Scripture doesn't have much good things to say about Tyre and Sidon, but they've done something to make Herod angry. Not too hard to imagine. Herod being angry, but they've done something, and he's mad, and he has cut off their food supply. Now, of course, these coastal port towns had access to fishing, but they didn't have large plots of farmland. That was Judea. They'd been cut off from the breadbasket, and so they have sent diplomats to come and smooth things over with Herod. We're told that these diplomats find their inn with a man named Blastus. We're told he's the king's chamberlain, equivalent to a secretary of state, and they're able to persuade him and seek peace to end the famine in their cities. Well, what happens next is the event that ends Herod. So many times in Scripture, we we, we read uh, the Word of God, and we're given exactly what we need to know. We're given what God wants us to know, and there, there are times when we just wish that we had more details and we had more color. Well, in this particular account, especially with the death of a monarch, uh, we've got historical commentary that comes from Josephus. And Josephus was the Jewish historian, and he writes on the death of Herod. He tells that Herod was wanting to 
entertain these diplomats from Tyre and Sidon. He's also wanting to entertain the residents of Caesarea. And so he decrees a series of entertainments, of shows that will take place in an amphitheater there in Caesarea. The occasion will be the celebration of the founding of the city. This beautiful coastal city that had been built by his grandfather, Herod the Great, and had been named after Caesar Augustus. There's going to be a series of shows. A 4,000 person audience. It's, It's wild. You can still go and see this same amphitheater today. There were a whole slate of performers lined up. And of course, Herod included himself. He had dramatic flair. He had talent in front of an audience. And Luke tells us that when it was Herod's time to perform, he puts on his royal robe, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration. Josephus tells us a little more about the robe. He says that it was made from silver spun threads. So a garment literally made from silver. And Herod scheduled this address to happen early in the morning, just as the sun is rising and it's beginning to crest the horizon. And he's sitting there in front of this crowd and the sun is hitting him. And he is dazzling, brilliantly shining in the sunlight. He's physically shining. He verbally, uh, rhetorically shines. Luke does not... Tell us what he said. No doubt it was impressive. It overwhelmed the people. It was the best thing they'd ever heard. And they don't just clap. We're told that they start to worship him. And they start to shout the voice of a God and not of a man. They're bowing down before the king. And what does Herod do? Not what this angel did in Revelation 19. Revelation 19, John is confused. And this, this angel is being worshipped and it's a, the angel says, Stop! I am a servant. I am not a god. What does Herod do? Come on. Give it to me. Yes, yes, finally. Someone is acknowledging my greatness. He takes this praise upon himself. And this Jewish king with a Jewish grandmother, he should have known better. He doesn't stop and rebuke them. He doesn't say, you shall worship the Lord your God only. He takes the glory for himself and the Lord struck him down. There before that crowd of 4,000 adoring spectators, God commanded his angel to cut Herod down. Josephus records that in front of the crowd, Herod, he's, he's sitting there. Maybe at this point he is standing and looking at them and just receiving their praise. 
But suddenly he doubles over in pain and has to be carried out of the amphitheater back to his palace. And Josephus tells us that he suffers immense pain for five days until he finally dies. Now there's a lot of debate over what kills Herod. Some will point to the mention of worms in this text and say that it was some tapeworm uh, infection. I don't know the word you would use. A, a, a number of tapeworms that lead to his death. Uh, others will say, no, the, the worm comment refers to this, his decomposition post-mortem and it was some other illness that he was struck with that caused his death. We, we, we don't know for certain, but what we do know is that the angel of the Lord struck him. And he was struck because he did not give God the glory just as he had ignored the miraculous escape from prison. He, he'd ignored the clear words that, that every Jew would have known. I am the Lord and my glory I will not give to another. You know, this reminds me of God canceling another king. In Daniel 5, Belshazzar, the king of Babylon. His enemies are outside. The Persian army has surrounded the city of Babylon. Belshazzar isn't worried about it. He's trusting in the strength of his city and his walls. He throws a massive feast for a thousand of his nobles and his wives and concubines, they're all there engaging in rank, debauchery, and drunkenness. And in his inebriated state, Belshazzar has an idea. He says, hey, let's bust out the fine china. Let's, let, let's impress the guests and drink in style. And so he says to his servants, hey, I want you to go and get the gold and silver cups that had been brought back from Solomon's temple. You know, those those that my, my grandfather brought back decades ago that have just been in storage. Those vessels that were set apart for holy use in the temple, I want you to bring those out. So all those cups are brought out. Wine is poured Belshazzar and his guests begin to drink to the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, and stone out of these holy vessels. What happens next? A hand appears and begins to write on the palace wall the words, Meany, meany, tekel, and parson. Words interpreted to mean God has numbered your days and has brought them to an end. You have been weighed and found wanting and your kingdom will be divided up and given to your enemies. And that very night, while the city is in a drunken stupor, the Persian army enters Babylon with really... Very, very minor bloodshed. And Belshazzar is assassinated. What is the king of Babylon to the maker of the heavens and the earth? 
Like Belshazzar, Herod is consumed with pride. He profanes the holy. He takes upon himself the honor due to God alone, and he's struck down. Now, I was thinking through application here and where to go, and apart from remaining confident that our God has power over earthly rulers, what else is there? There's, there's the call to repentance that was mentioned. There's also, of course, a, a call to humility, which is the opposite of pride, thinking more highly, uh, not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. But I was trying to think through applications, and I stumbled upon something, a a psalm that had been mentioned. And really, the the parallels with this text, or the contrast with this text, is it's amazing. Turn to Psalm 34. I want you to see this. This is your application. This is amazing. And as we read this, just keep in mind some of the things we've talked about already. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 10. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me. And delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. And their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Isn't that a photo negative of Herod's pride and judgment? We're to boast in Him and to magnify and exalt His name. He is the one who delivers us from all our fears. And and those who look at Him are, are radiant. And it's not the reflection of the sunlight off of shiny clothes. We're, we're looking to Him and reflecting His glory. And then we've got another mention of an angel. Except this one, he's not bringing affliction. He's not striking down. He, he encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. He, he pitches his tent. He is present with. He covers and protects those who fear the Lord. So why are we afraid? we fear the Lord, we have nothing to fear. Those who seek Him lack no good thing. Here's our application. Christian, don't be afraid. What are tyrants to a sovereign God? 
Last thing I want you to see, verse 24. Again, another contrast. But the word of God increased and multiplied. When we put verses 23 and 24 together, you've got Herod being eaten by worms and breathing his last, but the word of God increased and multiplied. You have this powerful king who has captivated the audience with his eloquent speech, and he dies and returns to dust, but the word of God continues to go forth and multiply. John Stott writes that at the beginning of this chapter, Herod is on a rampage. He's arresting, he's persecuting, but at the end, he himself is struck down and dies. It opens with James dead and Peter in prison and Herod triumphing, and it closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Such is the power of God to overthrow hostile human plans and to establish his own in their place. We remember that not only are tyrants nothing to a sovereign God, we also remember that his word will never fail. His word will never be defeated. Kings will die, but the word of our God, as we say every Sunday, stands forever. The word of God increased and multiplied. The trials do not hinder it. The trials, like rocks thrown into a pond, make a violent splash, but those ripples touch every part of the pond. You think of the beginning of the book of Acts. Jesus says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And no tyrant is going to stand in the way. His word cannot fail. I want to end with a famous story that's appropriate here about Voltaire. Voltaire was the French philosopher he was agnostic. He was hostile to the church. He ridiculed the word of God, mocked the word of God. He, he did something. Like, we, we are used to this. We, we see this everywhere today, don't we? Scoffers who think they're brilliant and they have finally arrived at truth and they've seen the light and we ignorant, dull-witted Christians are still living in the dark ages. Well, Voltaire was that way. And he made a bold prediction. He said, 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. Meaning, 100 years from now, there's not going to be a Bible on earth except in some kooky antique collector's shop. There's going to be a dusty Bible on the shelf everyone's forgotten about a hundred years from now. Just one century and everyone will have finally attained the level of enlightenment I've obtained and they'll leave the Bible and they'll leave Jesus Christ behind. It's a bold prediction. Voltaire died in 1778. You want to know what happened just 50 years after his death? 
You, you want to know what was happening in his home 50 years after his death? The Genevan Bible was being printed in his home on the same printing press that had printed Voltaire's books. Don't fear tyrants. Don't fear scoffers and mockers. Our God is the Lord of all, and his word never fails. Let's pray. Father God, you are King of kings. You are Lord of lords. What are the kings and Caesars and emperors of the world compared to you? Father, they're pawns. They're dust. Father, would we be those who fear you and by fearing you fear nothing else? Father, would we look to you and find our would, would you become to us a treasure? Father, would we look to you as the source of our hope and our peace, the source of our identity, who we are, the, the, the hope for our future, our, our stronghold and fortress in times of trouble? Father, you will never be moved. And your word will never fail. Help us to trust. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're about to remember in the Lord's Supper one who was struck down and one who was afflicted and one on whom the judgment of God fell. But it was not because he sinned, 